1: Well, let's talk about that other public health emergency we're dealing with here in British Columbia, and that is our opioid overdose epidemic. What are we doing to bring those numbers down? Because they, those numbers are also incredibly high, and disturbingly so, given that we've had five years of this public health emergency. But interesting discussion that I thought we should have, and it's about whether or not workplaces, whether or not your employer potentially has a role here to help bring some of those numbers down. Why do we think that? Well, we know that the majority of people who are dying here are men alone in a private residence. These are people who are often hiding their addiction from family and friends. They are working individuals. They are, you know, on the job, but they're also using in secret that leads to these problems. So can the workplace step in and do something here? We're going to talk about that idea with a couple of guests right now. Joining us is Elliot Stone, the CEO of Alavita, and Jonathan Chapnick, who's a Vancouver Employment Law Specialist of Portage Legal services, thanks to both of you for being here this morning
2: Thank you simmy morning thanks a lot
1: Jonathan, let me start with you is this something that more workplaces are getting involved in and talking about whether or not they have a role to play with the opioid overdose ap- epidemic
3: um, I, I think I think for a while now workplaces have been getting involved in uh, substance use issues uh, among their employees, but I think they've been doing it the wrong way um, You know, the standard approach to date has been characterized by coercion and stigmatization and exclusion. We've been pushing people with substance use issues out of the workplace. We've been punishing them or alternatively, we've been mandating them into ineffective treatment and unnecessary surveillance. Um, You know, we've created a workplace environment that's not conducive to employees coming forward and seeking help for their substance use problems. It's an environment that creates barriers to employees getting the health care they need. So workplaces have been involved in this stuff for a long time, but just not in the right way.
1: Okay, so then, Elliot, where does Alavita come in? How does that work?
2: Yeah, well, at Alavita, it's really about getting people kind of an access point much earlier. We forget that, you know, even with the case of opioids, many people are using opioids for years, if not decades, before they actually have a you know a serious consequence or or, you know, God forbid, uh, death uh, as we're as we're hearing so much in the news. Um, But these are these are uh, problems that last years. And we have lots of entry points where we can offer help to poor people along the way. And what we do is we offer confidential um, virtual treatment across substances uh, across Canada. So we're Canada wide and and from mild to moderate to severe uh, addiction issues at a point where they don't have to talk to the employer to get help. And that's a key difference here where, you know, if you have something like, uh, you know, hypertension or diabetes or carpal tunnel, you don't expect to actually have to talk to your employer in order to get help through your benefits. And the same thing should be true for those who are struggling with a substance, you know, whether it's opioids or alcohol or something else.
1: Right. So then, Jonathan, is that not the case now? So if you've got an employee who has a substance abuse problem, you don't go straight to the kind of medical professionals. You have to deal with, what, your boss, your manager?
3: Yeah, well, typically, um, I think that flows from a, a couple of things. The first thing is um, substance use remains kind of uh, a stigmatized uh, health issue or, or um, in the workplace, and so um, when... When someone comes forward with the issue of, of substance use, it's treated immediately as a workplace problem. Even if the person has, has never had any you know, attendance performance behavior issues in the workplace, it's treated as a workplace problem, and when there's a workplace problem, the boss gets involved, and rightly so. And so that, the employer comes in right away, and uh, as opposed to you know treating it more as a, a personal health issue in, in the same way that we treat. You know, dental care, uh, massage, uh, physio, stuff like that—that that you can just go on your own to a benefits plan and access patient-centered, evidence-based, confidential, you know, non-stigmatizing uh, healthcare.
1: Right, Elliot. What do we know about uh, people with addictions issues and employment? Do, like, are a lot of people they keep that secret, don't they? And there's and they're fully employed.
2: Oh, absolutely. Like, that, I, mean, I think that that's one of the the challenges with the main statistic that we all report on, which is kind of deaths per capita, which is you know frightening and newsworthy, but also somewhat unrelatable. Uh, we forget that you know there are you know about over seventy percent of people who are having addiction issues are working full time, uh, and and that means that a lot of them are around us, right? They're in accounting, they're in sales, uh, and and they're going getting up and going to work every day, and and those people need help too. And actually, we can do a lot more. Uh, the earlier we go, you know, this is health in general. This isn't just substance use, right? The earlier you get to someone with, with a particular health concern, the more you can do for less, right? And we have to engage broadly to destigmatize, but also uh, do it at an earlier stage.
1: What is the benefit, Elliot, then to a company for them to take this approach and say, yes, we are going to help our employees who might have a secret substance abuse issue?
2: I, mean, I think that the the obvious kind of front and center um, uh, improvement would be reduced disability cases in the long run. But I think that overall, you know, even those who never make it to disability or would never have a critical event can also be more productive and healthier. Right. I mean, you know, having a substance use issue is a huge drag on your productivity at work and on your personal health. Um, even if you're not sort of, you know, in the level of use that could be, you know, really critical to your ability to work. Um, And I think a lot of people struggle in that zone for years and years uh, and don't actually get any help. And it's also important to mention here that the loved ones, right? You know, if, you know, about 30% of the time, the folks that come forward for Alavita uh, are are coming forward and asking for someone that they're caring for, right? So a spouse or a child at home and and really making sure that we offer support for that as well. Because if you're having someone who's got severe substance use issues in your immediate family, that is a huge drag on you as well and, and, and something that you need support in dealing with.
1: Jonathan, what do we know about how much this costs uh, the business community and employers?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, I think Elliot has those statistics more at his fingertips than I do. I think I think some of the... From my perspective, I think some of the costs in this area um, are self-inflicted by employers because the approach that um, we generally take to employees with substance use issues is to send them away, to send them to um, expensive uh, treatment that takes you know, weeks and months, um, kind of uh, residential, right. kind of inpatient treatment, takes people away from the workplace, you know, impacts productivity in a, in a negative way. Um, we bring them back on kind of in monitoring arrangements that cost more money. And, and by the way, by the, while they're gone, we're backfilling for them. We are doing scheduling stuff. We're doing recruitment. You know, we create the we've, we've created more costs than I think there need to be. Um, you know, some of those general economic costs we've all heard about in relation to mental health and substance use in the, in the workforce are, are those Numbers are, are big and well-known, but I think employers could be doing a better job at, at saving, you know, not, not adding on, not piling on to those costs.
1: Yeah, interesting topic. All right, thanks to both of you for being here this morning.
2: Thank you very much, Simi. Thanks a lot.
1: That is Elliot Stone, the CEO of Alavita. They provide virtual kind of rehab services, counseling services to help people with substance abuse issues. And Jonathan Chapnick of Portage Legal Services, they're experts on workplace law and policy, also pushing this idea of workplaces needing to get more involved in how they deal with, with their employees' substance use issues that perhaps dealing with it differently could destigmatize it, bring it out in the open, and we wouldn't have as many, um, you know, cases of of opioid overdoses as we do if, we, if it was more open for people to be able to get help for those issues because many of them are high-functioning in society, working every single day and still need that help. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So any relaxation I might have had from having a week off has gone completely out the window this morning because we're having all these technical difficulties. You've heard in the news, there's a problem with Rogers phones right across the country. Cell service is down, disrupted. Well, a number of our guests have been Rogers phone customers, so we haven't been able to reach them. So we will keep trying But clearly this is an issue. Word from Rogers is they're doing the best they can. We'll let you know in the news, of course, and more how they get this fixed. In the meantime, well, thanks for all your emails. Cause I have been enjoying reading them, your take on this whole issue, which is what we were hoping to talk to Sarah Kirby, young Vancouver city councilor about in a few minutes, but it's about these videos, the packed crowds that we're seeing, no social distancing, hardly anybody wearing a mask, see people hugging and stuff, essentially big crowds at English Bay and Kitts beach over the weekend, because you know, the weather was warmer. You would anticipate that people were definitely enjoying being outside, But how did we not anticipate this? How did the people in charge not anticipate that this might be an issue? We know Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart said that he was in touch with the Vancouver Police Department to say, "Mm, maybe we should be rethinking how we do this personally, it's too little too late. How did we not know this was coming? So earlier, I had an email from a gentleman named Greg. And Greg said, you know, he's 32 years old. He's got a wife. He's got little kids. And he just said he is done with this. He's calling the government's bluff. He wants to see things shut down, but he doesn't think they're going to do it. He said that is what is needed because people aren't paying attention. So I read that out. I put it to you and said, you know, what do you think about this? And I really got quite a, a mix of people In reply to that, but Jeff wrote me to say, I completely agree with Greg. Uh, Jeff said, I live in Penticton and I see the campgrounds full, hotel parking lots full Alberta license plates everywhere. Jeff says, lock this down borders and flights. He said, I also don't understand the vaccine rollout. He said, my 52 year old wife is at extreme risk being on immune suppressants and biologics for Crohn's disease. She hasn't been contacted. Her family doctor and specialists have said they were never contacted by anyone for a list of extremely vulnerable patients. How are they picking and choosing people? He said, I'm 57. I've been registered since the first day allowable, and I've heard nothing. I would go to a pharmacy, but there is not one south of Kelowna that is delivering vaccines. I think Jeff is talking about the AstraZeneca one there, too. And he said, finally, I own a liquor store. My business was deemed essential from the beginning. Uh, He said, I know that decision is controversial, but nonetheless, you know, myself, he said, my staff, we're frontline workers. He goes, but we, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix, pretend that we don't exist. So Jeff has a lot of frustration. So there's a business owner who is even saying, and his wife is at risk saying, lock this down. Not happy with what they see going on there. Jim wrote to say, you know, a year ago, I thought I was a lone voice calling for a total lockdown. Uh, Over the last week, I have heard more calls, though, for a total lockdown, border closures, and strict enforcement than I've heard the previous 52 weeks. He said, not much has changed except my wife and I are now vaccinated. We intend on getting back to life. No longer are we afraid to go out for a meal on a patio, go shopping, or otherwise get back to enjoying our life or whatever may be left of it. Well, I'm glad to hear that you have been vaccinated. I know a lot of people like myself still waiting out there. uh, And you know what? That's a big concern. Wondering if we're going to hear more about that today and whether or not we're going to find out If BC is also going to lower the age of availability for the AstraZeneca vaccine to 40, Uh, they have done that in Alberta starting tomorrow. So Tuesday, you can do that in Alberta. And in Ontario, starting today, people the age of 40 and up can get the AstraZeneca vaccine. So keep those emails coming. Thank you very much, simi at cknw.com. But right now, let's talk about this. What can we be doing differently? What can the city of Vancouver in particular be doing differently when it comes to dealing with people and their behaviour outdoors? Joining us now is Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Thanks for being with us. Hi, good morning, Simi. So did you see these videos on the weekend of people outside?
4: I did. Um, it's it's almost like watching a driving by the scene of an accident and you don't really want to look at them, um, but you do. And yeah, I, I, I
1: saw them. So what was your reaction to that? Well, I, I think like
4: everybody, it's it's dismay and um, just frustration and disappointment because you can step it out and you can see the consequences happening pretty quickly. I think that when people are outside, they have this false sense of security and feel that they're more invincible Um, But we have variants that are deadly. We don't fully know the effects of those. And there is a real difference between, you know, gathering outside, spaced out in a small group, and being close together, hugging, touching, not having masks. Yeah,
1: I know. But I think people get frustrated when they see that, and then politicians are surprised to see that. And we think, no, no, everybody should have seen this coming. Why wasn't the city of Vancouver more proactive in dealing with situations like this?
4: I think think what we're seeing is just human... Um, that are craving that social contact, and it's sort of the perfect storm when you've got the beautiful weather and everybody's outside, and, and we could spend some time talking about punishment and you know how how do you better disperse crowds, which is you know one option as opposed to trying to ticket people, limited resources, that kind of thing. I think the key, big key here is speeding up the vaccination program um, and trying to expedite that and move it forward. We have not had a 24/7 type of vaccination approach. We haven't, you know, we're not sort of doing it fully evenings and weekends. The city can certainly help by making facilities available for that, opening up community centers. Um, You know, there's large facilities that are being used for medical support, like the convention center. So I think the trick here is to really try to get people over the vaccination finish line um, and get them closer because it's really difficult to deal with human nature.
1: But But isn't there something the city could have done, do you think, with these big gatherings? Like even sending a bylaw officer to walk in the crowd and just say, guys, come on, break it up, break it up. Like you don't necessarily have to hand out tickets left, right, and center, but why are we just letting this go unchecked?
4: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we can do some things. So I think back to the beginning of the pandemic when the park rangers were out there with those foam noodles. Do you remember that? Trying to um, educate people about physical distancing and what uh, two meters and six feet apart look like. Um, So yeah, absolutely we could do some things practically like having bylaw offices out there, um, reminding people and trying to keep those crowds dispersed. Previously, you'll also remember that parking lots um, had also been closed off in an effort to kind of um, keep people away from gathering at some of those popular destinations. But we're going to have to get proactive and creative about it because um, it, it really does matter. and does have consequences.
1: Is this something that you think will be discussed at a council meeting? I
4: think that this is going to be, I think that this is probably going to be discussed this morning um, with the BPD. Uh, I think they're hearing a lot loud and clear, but to be fair to them, uh, a lot of stuff gets downloaded to them. And, you know, we know they were dealing with the shooting in Cole Harbour, stabbing close by. I haven't decided if those are connected or related yet. Um, but I think that the city and the province has to step up and do its part because um, everybody sort of says, well, you know, where's the police and where's the BPD? But to your point, I think there's some steps that can be taken to be a lot more proactive um, a lot earlier.
1: And do you think there is demand for that? Have you been hearing from people?
4: Yeah, I think that people do want to see that because the folks that we're hearing from are the ones that are doing it right, that are staying home, that are following the rules, that haven't seen their friends and family might get out for a short walk and then they see this happening and they're feeling like they're kind of, you know, the chucks that for, for, you know, not for sacrificing and and these other folks are not doing it. So I I think that we do need to have a pretty strong role around education, around presence, um, and looking at other opportunities to make sure that we don't get to these sort of critical mass of, you know, pandemic partying um, and beach bashes on Friday and Saturday night.
1: Right, because like if the weather's getting good, do we not have to figure out that, like, okay, this is going to keep happening?
4: Yeah, and the consequences can be very severe. I mean, right now if you think it sort of look ahead, we have already moved away from indoor dining. We're expecting that to be extended and the impact if we had to move to more strict measures, if we had a shutdown um on things like our restaurants and small businesses would be severe. Think about our arts and culture sector that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, who would love to be at the stage now where they could be planning for a fall season and if this continues to go on and on, all of those yeah. folks are just gonna be, you know, sitting there basically kind of putting it out, right? And and, and
1: it's time out and it's having a huge impact on them. More to be done then. Um, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councillor, talking about what's been going on outdoors on Vancouver beaches, particularly over the weekend. This is Mornings with Simi. I cannot tell you how much I have been looking forward to talking about this next story ever since I read about it. It was the creation of a new pasta shape called cascatelli and it takes a lot to create a new shape this one was worked on by Dan Pashman who is a James Beard Webby Award winning podcast host of Sporkful and he joins us now to talk more about this Dan thank you for being here
0: Thanks for having me Simmy How did you get this
1: idea I mean
0: You know, I I, I decided that I wanted to tell a big story on the Sporkful Podcast, some kind of epic story, and I thought that that should be that I would create a food. I settled on pasta because I felt like it's a basic food. Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. People would get excited about it. And I just felt like pasta shapes were the kind of thing that, like, you know, I love when I get the reaction on the Sporkful podcast and we, when we obsess over the details of the food, people will say, I never knew I had such strong opinions about that. <laughs> and, and I wanted to kind of provoke that reaction about pasta shapes. People would sort of be awakened to their own opinions about pasta shapes that they didn't realize they had been settling for mediocrity in many shapes for many
1: years. I'm into this. Okay, so what were your um, like prerequisites for this? What were the things that you absolutely had to have with this new pasta shape?
0: Well, so, so I sort of made up these three pseudoscientific terms for uh, that I use to judge all pasta shapes. So there's forkability, how well does it stay on the fork, sauceability, how well does sauce adhere to it, and tooth sinkability, which is how satisfying is it to sink your teeth into it. Uh, and a lot of pasta shapes are good at one or two of these things, but very few nail all three. So I wanted to try to create a shape that would nail all three. And I sort of started off by just eating every obscure shape I could get my hands on. And through that research, I, I, I focused in on the idea of combining ruffles and a tube in some way they had never been combined before.
1: Okay, so what, what is it about the ruffles, do you think, that makes a good pasta shape?
0: Well, ruffles, first of all, there aren't very many pasta shapes that have ruffles. They, I know they're out there, but there's not that many. There's a lot more tubes, and everyone thinks, tube, everyone thinks that Um, tubes hold sauce so well, but I think ruffles also hold sauce very well. Things get stuck in the nooks and crannies, but the other thing is that they are a unique textural sensation. When you chew on ruffles and they go in your mouth, there's nothing else quite like it. Um, They're very playful. They're fun. They're kind of stimulating, and so I wanted that in my shape, and I thought that there are not enough pasta shapes have done that, and with the tube, I kind of You know, I I, I was very focused on bucatini. I wanted to take inspiration from bucatini, which is like spaghetti but hollow down the center. And um, everyone always told me bucatini is so great because the sauce goes into the tube, but I never thought it did. The tube is too narrow. I thought it was overrated. Then I came to realize that what makes bucatini great is that because the tube is so narrow, it has a very springy texture. Most tubes, you bite into them, they fall flat. Bucatini springs back. So I wanted to try to get some of that springiness into the shape as well.
1: Okay, so like did you experiment in your kitchen here, Dan? Like are you trying out all sorts of shapes with pasta cutters and things in your own kitchen? Well, not
0: with pasta cutters. I mean, I I went out and bought a whole bunch of different uh, pastas that existing shapes and ate them. And then sort of – then I bought graph paper. And, you know, and, and, and w- once I settled on the idea of ruffles and a tube, I started dr- literally sketching all different ways in which a ruff- ruffles and a tube might be brought together. Then I had to take those to a pasta dye designer. The dye, D-I-E, is like the mold for the shape. Um, and so there's only one pasta dye designer still actively making dyes in America today. And so I had to track him down and get him to give me the time of day, which was not easy. <laughs> um, he's yeah. very busy, as you can imagine.
1: Uh, and also, I mean, how do the Italians take this, right? This is a very North American thing. We think it's great, but they take their pasta business very seriously over there.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have to say the reaction has not been as universally hostile as I expected. <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, they, there's been some, some people uh, are, are, are put off by an American or any North American who has opinions about pasta, um, so some of them don't like it, but but a lot of them were, were actually sort of like grudgingly curious. I think that even some Italians may have realized, you know what, we haven't, we've maybe been resting on our laurels a little bit, and perhaps, perhaps we did need an outsider to come in and bring a new perspective.
1: How long has it been since there has been a new kind of well-established pasta shape?
0: I, I honestly was not able to pinpoint that information. I mean, setting aside sort of your cartoon character pastas, the most recent one that I could find, there may be others that I couldn't find. But De Checo made one, launched one about 30 years ago, uh, called Racete, like racket. It's shaped like a tennis racket. Now that one's sort of borderline gimmick or not gimmick, um, but it's been a while, you know. But I mean, it, the, the whole project took me three years from start to finish, from when, when I set out on my mission to the time that the pasta shape came out just a few weeks ago. Um, and the whole epic quest was in this 40. wonderful podcast. We did a special five part series called Mission Impossible that tells the story of my whole three year quest.
1: I know, I absolutely love this. Okay, so how did you decide on the name?
0: So that's one thing that has turned off some Italians. So I I wanted a name that would sound to the average North American like a classic pasta shape. I did not want the shape itself to be a gimmick. I wanted it to be legitimately great, and I wanted the name to feel the same way. So some people said, oh, name it the Pashmini, because my last name is Pashmin, or call it the Sporktini, because my podcast is called The Sporkful. No, I didn't want that. And so my favorite pasta shape names are the ones where the shape is named after something that it looks like. So like Orecchiette, little ears. I showed the shape to a bunch of friends, said, what does it look like to you? And then I looked up the Italian words for those things and tried to settle on an Italian word that sounded nice, that was easy to remember, easy to say, and easy to spell for the average non-Italian-speaking North American. And so... um, I settled on Cascatelli, which is Italian for waterfalls, because when you hold Perfect. the shape vertically, there's two parallel ruffles that look like flowing water. Um, and the reason why some Italians are upset is because technically the correct word plural for little waterfalls would be cascatelle, ending in an E. I, chose to, I took some poetic license. I chose to end it in an I because I felt that sounded more like a pasta shape to the average eater.
1: I see. Okay. And obviously you've hit a nerve here, Dan, with people because I was trying to order some, and it's a 12-week wait for this yeah, pasta yeah. Uh,
0: it, it is a wait, and, and, and I apologize in advance to, uh, to, to Canadian listeners that um, the shipping is, is pricey right now. We are working on some solutions, but I think some people just underestimate how big and heavy four pounds of pasta is. Um, but I will encourage people to band together, place a bulk order for your whole block, and you can reduce the shipping <laughs> cost that way. There's actually like a, a Discord group for Canadians. We put a post up on Sporkful.com for Canadians to meet in the comments to try to work out bulk purchases. Um, but it's been, it's been insane. You know, I, you know, I, in my wildest dreams, I did not expect this to become like an international sensation. So it's been very, very exciting. And uh, my wife and two daughters, who are big parts of the story in the podcast, who have been... So they were my focus group throughout this process. Um, also it's, it's, been, it's been fun to share right. the, the uh, success with the whole family. No
1: kidding. Now, is this the only pasta shape in the Pashman House, or are you still allowing others, uh, other shapes in there?
0: I'm still allowing others, but I've got to tell you, this has turned the whole family into kind of pasta shape snobs. Because, you know, now now we all think more carefully about pasta shapes. And now we've all had, I mean, I think I'm very happy with the way the mine has turned out. But also in the research phase, there are a few others that we got into that we also love. And as a result, the sort of run-of-the-mill supermarket rigatoni is just not even enough for my seven-year-old Emily at this point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing more. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much, Simi. Take care.
1: That's Dan Pashman. The podcast is called Sporkful, and you really have to listen to their five-episode Mission Impastable series, get it, Impastable, where they talk about the creation of this new type of pasta. It's called Cascatelli. Good luck finding it. Let me know if you do, because I'm on a 12-week waiting list for it. This is Mornings with Simmy. A lot of people in British Columbia have waited years for what is going to happen this week. We will hear directly from former BC Liberal cabinet ministers for the first time this week as BC's inquiry into money laundering is entering a new and very significant phase. So who's going to be there? Former BC Liberal Premier Christy Clark, former Finance Minister Mike DeYoung. You've got opposition leader Shirley Bond, Rich Coleman, among others, it's going to be pretty significant. So joining us now for more on this is Global BC reporter John Hua, who has been closely following this story all along. John, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. So how is this all going to get started? What is the timeline? Yeah, so like
5: you said, this is something that we've been um, waiting years for. um, And this is really going to allow the Cullen Commission to truly show its mettle. And you know, there has been a lot of criticism, a lot of concern about the effectiveness of this public inquiry into B.C. money laundering. And this is the opportunity um, for the Cullen Commission to show, um, you know, like I said, it show its mettle and its ability to get to the bottom of, of things, to get to the truth, to get to accountability. So over the next few weeks, as you said, um, this is government response. So we are going to be hearing from, you know... Deputy ministers, but more importantly, as you mentioned, uh, you know, former Premier Christy Clark tomorrow, uh, Mike De Jong at the end of the week, Rich Coleman next week as well. And, you know, these were the key players that were involved, that were watching over everything, essentially, when our casinos were being used to launder money for criminal organizations.
1: Is it fair to say, do you think, John, that everything has kind of led up to this point? Because we've heard from a lot of lower-level people saying, listen, I tried to tell the people in charge, I tried to tell the people in charge, and nobody was listening.
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Throughout this process, um, you know, watching this over, over a period of months, as many people can imagine, there's been a lot of passing the buck. And everyone seemed aware of the problem, and everyone was waiting for someone else, some other organization to deal with the fact that organized crime was funneling millions and millions of dollars of their criminal cash into B.C. casinos. So the buck has to stop somewhere, and it stopped at the B.C. legislature at the time. And so, you know, we have to find out and we have to hear through testimony and through the evidence that, how much were these ministers aware of and why did they not take the action when so many were sounding the alarm and across the board?
1: Right. You know, you've extensively covered this story. What What do you want to see asked here? What are you looking for this week, John?
5: Yeah, I just want, you know, I want these politicians who were in charge at the time um, to answer why were they able to hear concerns from GPEB, which was the casino regulator, see video, and we've all seen this video of people just bringing in duffel bags, shopping bags, dumping stacks of twenties wrapped up in elastic bands that looks like drug money onto the cash cage table. Why were they able to see all this evidence? Even getting warnings from the RCMP. You know, everyone's been kind of pushing back and saying, "Oh, you know, it's up to the police to investigate it." Well. The police were also sounding the alarm. Professionals in the International Proceeds of Crime Unit was telling everyone across the board, including the B.C. legislature, hey, we have huge concerns that this is not only tied to organized crime. We're talking about the triads. We're talking about Mexican and Colombian cartels. We're talking about um, Middle Eastern organized crime groups that's tied to terrorism. And this is all, again, again, tied to the fentanyl drug trade. So this message clearly came across. So why I want the politicians to be able to answer to is, how could you hear this and still find a way to not actively do something about it? And at the same time, they were raising the gaming limits. You know, let's let the bets go higher. Let's, you know, raise the, the table limits where one person can, you know, play hundreds of, you know, up to a, almost 100000 I think $50,000 a hand yeah. across the table in, in one go. And, yes, it's filling the coffers, but willfully blind to what, where this money is coming from.
1: And now is there concern, though, do you think, John, because, you know, will they invoke cabinet confidentiality? Will they just say, listen, we're not going to get into things that we talked about at the cabinet table? We can't.
5: Yeah, this is something that I raised uh, leading up to once when it was announced that um, the government response was was taking place and who was going to be testifying. And I did uh, right away ask the calling commission, what powers do you have to overrule cabinet privilege? And um, the the straight answer is they don't. Uh, So it is going to be up to um, these politicians and, and, you know, whether it was the former Liberal government to waive that cabinet privilege. Um, What I've been told so far is that... um, you know, parties are being very cooperative, uh, but you know, when backed into a corner, it will be very interesting to see if if they use that as some kind of defense to hide behind. And I think that you know, the public should see it for what it is. It will be very, very telling that if all of a sudden, you know, the powers of cabinet privilege are raised, then that's a big question on why.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right, John. Thanks so much. We look forward to your reports this week. Thank you very much. It's John Hua, Global BC reporter, who will be covering the Cullen Commission as the heavy hitters come out to testify this week, including former Premier Christy Clark, uh, former Finance Minister Mike DeYoung, opposition leader Shirley Bond, uh, Rich Coleman. This is all going to happen over the next couple of weeks, but the former Premier Christy Clark uh, expected to testify this week. And yes, There are concerns that they may just invoke cabinet confidentiality, uh, but that has been a concern all through this process. uh, One that uh, David Eby talked about extensively, the Attorney General, when this first was coming up, the issue of having a public inquiry uh, and cabinet confidentiality, he asked the former, you know, government in charge to waive cabinet confidentiality in regards to this information so that they could put it out there to the public. That request was denied. So yeah, you can expect there would be some fireworks, I think, on that front coming up this week, and uh, we'll have complete coverage for you. And as well, BC1 uh, will be carrying that testimony, so you can make sure you follow it all along. I know lots of people have a huge interest in this. And honestly, Honestly, I think it would be the first time since we have heard from the former premier, the former finance Mike DeYoung, Rich Coleman, about this particular money laundering issue. They haven't really talked about it. Even when all the concerns were going on, all the pressure was on, didn't really come up. This is the first time where they will very pointedly get asked these questions, and the biggest one being... Why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you stop this when all the evidence was there that something wrong was happening? So that's going to happen at the Cullen Commission this week, and we'll definitely have it for you.